Hi, everybody. My name is Frank Fear, and you're listening to Under the Radar. You know, years ago, I remember driving through a mill town, not wanting to take another breath. The air quality was that bad. When we stopped to refuel, my mother, audacious as she was, asked the attendant how he could stand the smell. Well, he said, you get used to it. I don't even smell it anymore. There's nothing unusual about the attendant's response. With ubiquity, people often stop paying attention and they just uh, adjust instead. Many do that even when they know and understand the consequences of doing nothing. In this case, it would be the connection between poor air quality and lung diseases. And often they do that because they feel unable to change the situation. They can't get out. They can't change what's happening. So they adjust. You know, as I think about that, I also think about the fact how serious the consequences can be. And I know as an activist and as a progressive that the changes that we fight for, like a higher minimum wage, health care for all, and a constructive response to climate change are connected to something larger. They're connected to what I call a macro cause, a cause that's so pervasive, just like the air in the example that I gave earlier, it's hardly recognizable these days. It has become absorbed in America's mindset and socioculture. It's the way it is. It's called neoliberalism. And it's the most influential social, economic, and cultural force of our age. But you know, few in the general public call it by name, and even fewer know it exists. It's there though, it's everywhere. Well, so many people I know have worked tirelessly to counter its effects. Neoliberalism continues to be the favored way of thinking and practicing by so many these days. And I'm sorry to say, it has become a prominent feature of national policies, not for a short time, but for decades. It's why in America, we don't have a higher minimum wage. We don't have Medicare for all. We don't have responsible policies to address climate change. We don't tax the wealthy the way we once did in this country. It's why poverty still exists in the most affluent country in the world and why we mistreat would-be immigrants at the border. I could go on, but you catch my drift. All of that is largely the result of a philosophy and practice that emphasizes me ahead of we, privileges those with money and influence, and encourages the survival of the fittest. The rest, well, we're on our own. For those who think, well, that's the result of conservatism, I, among others, would say, ah, there's more to it than that. Uh, for those who want to read about neoliberalism, what it is and what it is wrought, I heartily recommend a reading that many of my colleagues I know would recommend too, because they have. It's written by an author by the name of George Monbiot, Last name is M-O-N-B-I-O-T, and the article is entitled Neoliberalism, the Ideology at the Root of All Our Problems. I'll repeat that. Neoliberalism, the Ideology at the Root of All Our Problems. It was published in 2016 by the British publication, The Guardian. While it's a very good piece, I have this to say reluctantly because I've, I've contributed to it. Academics such as myself don't often do a very good job of communicating effectively about neoliberalism 
in ways that the public can understand. Other academics do, but not necessarily the public. There is another path, and that's the purpose of today's podcast. It's the arts, through expressions such as novels and plays, and performing arts through dramatization. Carol Churchill's play, Top Girls, is a good example because it explores the impact of neoliberalism on women, the roles women play and how they play it. Written in the early 1980s and first performed in 1982, it's an outstanding, outstanding expression of sociocultural satire. Churchill is a public intellectual, and she crafted a timely response to neoliberalism. When Churchill wrote the play, neoliberalism was being foisted full stop on Britain by its enthusiastic ally and practitioner, Margaret Thatcher. So as we think about the play, we, we learn and get to know Marlene. She's the play's primary protagonist in an all-female cast. Marlene lives in London, and she's a high-flying person in the business world. In contrast to Marlene and her life and status, we find Joyce, her sister, who's a single mother. Marlene lives in an upscale part of town. Joyce does not. And on this day, Marlene travels to Joyce's home. The first visit Marlene has made there in quite a while, even though Angie, Marlene's daughter, lives with Joyce. I like the way critic Ben Brantley put it in his review of the play. I quote, Marlene is seen as both in the unforgiving world of affluence in which she now lives and the equally unforgiving one of poverty from which she escaped. Another critic, Carrie Reed, put it this way, written as a response to the notion that taking over the corner office or occupying Downing Street was itself inherently liberating, Churchill uses the bifurcating and sometimes suffocating choices faced by women as a skeleton for her story. Spot on. Going back to the play, it doesn't take long for the sisters to quarrel. I've got four different cleaning jobs, Joyce tells her sister, and Marlene can't understand why. Why is this? Why is she doing that? The way out, Marlene asserts, is to have a plan and work diligently to achieve it. That's the way to success. Marlene boasts that she believes in the individual and what individuals alone can achieve with their hard work and persistence. Just look at Margaret Thatcher, a shopkeeper's daughter who became prime minister. But Joyce is having none of it. The, the sisters are worlds apart. Joyce sees it as an us versus them situation. And from her perspective, Marlene is one of them. Says Joyce, I spit when I see a Rolls Royce, scratch it with my ring. Marlene responds, I hate the working class. But make no mistake about it, Top Girls isn't a family spat. It's a commentary about neoliberalism, of which Marlene is both a believer and proponent. She is all about the need to roll up your sleeves, compete, advance, and most importantly, succeed. And she has precious little time for anything else, including bringing up her daughter, the responsibility for which has befallen to her sister. But the story Churchill tells doesn't hinge on a two-sister storyline. In fact, the interchange just described comes from the play's last scene. 
the play's beginning is quite different. So different that it seems drawn from an entirely different script. Yet, it has stood the test of time as the play's most memorable scene. There, Marlene welcomes five women to a dinner party to celebrate her recent promotion. But surprisingly, these women aren't acquainted. We soon, we soon learn why. We have Isabella Bird from Scotland, who lived from 1831 to 1904, and who traveled extensively in later life. We have Lady Naiho, born in 1258, a Japanese emperor's courtesan, who is also a poet and author and Buddhist nun. There's Dolgret, also known as Mad Woman, a character in Pitha Bruegel's eponymous painting, led a group of women through hell fighting devils. Pope Joan, thought to have served as Pope from, 18, from 854 to 856, is also at the table, as is Griselda from the late 1400s, as the obedient wife of Inchaucer's The Clerk's Tale from the Canterbury Tales. What do they have in common? They live in a man's world. Early on, they share stories about how they sought their father's favor, marrying well and bearing children. Gret had 10. Then supplication shifted from father to the women's spouses. Well, except for Joan. Joan's story was quite different. Her accomplishments actually came as a man because women were barred from engaging in the activities she valued and preferred. The ruse of posing as a man began as a preteen and continued for the rest of her life. And Joan succeeded, not by a little, but by a lot. She was elected Pope. But before she continues her story, those assembled remember why they're there for the night. Marlene was promoted to managing director. You find work for people, asked Joan. Lady Nayo gushes about Marlene's success, telling the group that Marlene has authority over women and also of men. Then it's back to Joan, who tells those assembled how much she enjoyed executing her papal responsibility. But it was a lonely life, too. And so Joan took a lover. Then one day, Joan fell ill while riding a horse during a procession. Observers believe she is dying, but the circumstance is very different. Joan is about to give birth. The baby just slid out onto the road, Jane Joan tells the assembled. The response, the crowd grabbed her by the feet, dragged her out of town, and stoned her to death. And when the audience expects more from these five figures, they vanish, not to be seen again in the play. The scene shifts to what's called the Top Girls Employment Agency, where clients and staff, all women again, interact. There we learn more about what it's like living in Marlene's professional orbit. For example, Janine, a typist who was elevated to a secretary, wants to continue moving up the career ladder because she's saving to get married. And Marlene is quick to oblige, giving her tips that she believes will help Janine succeed in that quest. But Janine is unconvinced that she has what it takes. Finally, after coaxing, she 
reluctantly agrees to at least give it a try. Other insider views of success follow, two specifically. In one scene, Louise, a top girl's client, talks about her past job experiences. Louise laments about working relentlessly for our company, and despite doing everything she was asked, she says, nobody noticed me. Young men, on the other hand, men are junior, and many she had trained go on to higher things. Louise continues unmasking the work culture, telling Wynne, a job interviewer, that she's the only woman at her current job. The rest are girls, that is, support staff. Louise is quick to disassociate herself with girls and women, for that matter. She says, I don't care greatly for working with women. I think I pass as a man at work. On the flip side, the second example is a person called Mrs. Kidd. Mrs. Kidd is the spouse of Howard Kidd, and the two of them are workplace peers. Until now, they both competed for a directorship. She won. Now there's a new challenge, helping Howard Kidd cope with being passed over by a woman and, whoa, having to work now for a woman. Mrs. Kidd asked Marlene for help. She says, you're going to have to be very careful how you handle him. He's very hurt. Well, let's take a step back, a few steps back. Know that Churchill's language use is intentional. Note that she doesn't refer to Mrs. Kidd by her first name. In Top Girls, there are men, there are women, and there are girls. Wives, too. And Churchill portrays differences in a sometimes harsh manner. But when it comes to competing and winning, well, that's when the masculine wins out. And it always wins out, irrespective of gender. To advance, women need to adjust and behave like men. Mrs. Thatcher did. Adjust. Just like that fuel attendant did. Get used to the air the way it is. And to get her point across, Churchill employs what at first is a very distracting technique until you get it. Time and time again, one character interrupts another character as that character is in mid-sentence, just as men often do to women. For example, Louise says, and I quote, I feel it's now or never. I sometimes think, and then she's interrupted by when. Wynne says, you shouldn't talk too much during, during an interview. Hmm, doesn't seem much connected, does it? Of course, not all of what Churchill writes is about neoliberalism and what neoliberalism has wrought. And that's the brilliance of this play. Neoliberalism, what we know today, is nothing more or less than the newest version of an age-old storyline. And that's exactly well why Churchill begins Top Girls with figures across the centuries. And it ends with two contemporary sisters and their conflicting life stations and worldviews. I love the way critic Helen Epstein puts it. I quote, the dialogue of act one with historic figures gives way to the raw, ugly, and intelligible lines of argument about the choices contemporary women do or don't have. For example, the terms of their employment, the 
terms of their relationships with fathers, lovers, husbands, their obligations to or abandonment of their children, and their very definitions of what it means to live a successful life, close quote. I found Carol Churchill's Top Girls to be a powerful experience. I think especially instructive with a conversation that follows with those who have never heard of neoliberalism and don't know how it impacts society or affects society and people who are living today. Well, progressives and other activists know, of course they know, but we face a challenge. We know there's a four step routine to change. Gosh, and I think I've been saying this routine for probably at least 10 years in talks and writing and presentations. The first is to name it. The second is to proclaim its negative, deleterious effects. The third step is to disdain it. And fourth is to change it. Name it, proclaim it, disdain it, change it. Well, in Top Girls, Carol Churchill takes steps one and two. It's up to the rest of us to finish that routine. Problem is, we've been at it for ages. It's our job now to continue the fight to change what Carol Churchill describes in Top Girls. Let me close with a thanks. A thanks to a colleague, Professor Lewis Dibble, uh, often known as Terry Dibble, of Indiana University, Purdue University, Columbus, for recommending the play to me. Terry, it was a great recommendation. Thank you so much. I hope you all enjoyed it. This is Frank Fear. You've been listening to Under the Radar. And as always, I certainly hope our paths will cross again very, very soon. Mm -hmm.